Dear friends, let's pray. Dear Lord, as it was in the beginning, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come inspire us, that the original intent and meaning of what is being conveyed through the vision of John will come to us with meaning and understanding, not of this world, but from you. So may the words of my mouth and meditation of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Friends, we've just read uh, Revelation 12, and Revelation 12 uh, is pretty much the centerpiece of the book of Revelation. Uh, It comes at a point right in the middle, it's the beginning of a series of visions, uh, quite uh, gory if you want to look at it that way, Uh, quite spectacular and wondrous. Uh, but it's all prefixed with the statement, a great sign, a great sign, a great symbol, a great uh, thing has happened and it points towards a further mystery. Now, uh, you recall last week, I I mentioned uh, the bald eagle and the northern bear. And one of the things I made mention is, depending on the context and the people who interpret it or receive this word at that particular point in time, it means different thing. And I mentioned, as you recall, uh, if you were to say this during the Cuban crisis, people would know you're making political reference to America and Russia. Uh, but in January this year, if you were to mention the eagle and the bear, uh, they'd be thinking about American football, uh, in particular the Chicago Cubs and uh, the Florida uh, Eagles, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and so, the particular period and the message that's given and the imagery that's given depends on who's receiving it and how it is intended to be interpreted. Uh, It's of particular importance when we read Revelation, so I'm going to spend a fair bit of time talking about uh, the background and how are we supposed to interpret uh, Revelation. Now, you must bear in mind, right, that the people who were listening to Revelation were common, ordinary folk. They're not theologians. They've not gone to seminary. Uh, Sometimes the literary devices that we tend to talk about and all the hidden meanings that preachers tend to say are in there uh, would not be what the common reader would have understood at that time. However, the distinct advantage of the people who are listening at that time was they were in the culture and these terms were common to them. Very much in the same way when I talk about Nasi Lemak or when I talk about the bridge, uh, you start thinking the bridge, oh yeah, Penang Bridge, you know, which particular bridge? New Bridge, Old Bridge or London Bridge, which bridge? Uh, so these terms to you, automatically in your culture, easier to understand. And so we are, in a way, going back to that period to understand how would they have understood it and the ways of interpretation that they have. One thing that is impressed upon me in this whole time is if ever you get preachers or teachers who come to you and say that Revelation has a hidden, secret, mysterious meaning that can only be revealed to you through secret knowledge, 
your alarm bell should automatically go up. Let me say this again. If ever someone comes to you and says that revelation has a secret meaning that only can be deciphered through this person's interaction with the Spirit of God, your alarm bell should automatically go up. Uh, because many people have made interpretations that have gone and says, oh, this, this uh, number 666, uh, uh, Bill Gates, la, uh, the Pope, uh, Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, whichever way you want to, you can manipulate it to make it say what it wants to. But how do you arrive at that? Oh, yeah, you know, you go through this complex thing and this special number which I got from God. So be very careful when you receive that kind of uh, information and, and I'll explain a little bit about how those formats uh, occur. So how do we go about interpreting Revelation? Well, one way of, uh, or most definitive way of interpreting Revelation is to understand how John, uh, the writer, intended for Revelation to be uh, interpreted. It says that the revelation uh, in the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsos. Uh, apocalypsos is uh, apocalyptic writing, prophetic, oracle, symbolic. So whatever revelation is, uh, one of its primary interpretive uh, rules is it is symbolic rather than literal. But symbolism has a, a particular thing you have to be careful about as well. Secondly, uh, it is from or of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's both. It is from Jesus Christ and it's also a revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if your preacher or teacher is telling you, oh, this is talking about the unfolding of future historical events, you know, about Hitler, about uh, Mao Zedong and all that stuff, um, that's not how John intended it to be. John says, it's about Jesus, it's from Jesus, and it's Him. So the core message of all of this should always be Jesus. If Jesus is not in this picture, then, you know, this guy is talking rubbish. He's talking more about what he wants to make out of the historical situation that he's looking at. Which God gave him to show his servants. So the question is, who are his servants? Now, if you actually have your text in uh, Revelation 1, in verse 4, he says, to the churches, <laughs> to the churches, uh, the seven churches, to the angel of the seven churches. So in particular, directly, his reference is his servants in the seven churches, which therefore from the context means that he has primary relevance historically, geographically, in the current time for the seven churches. So part of the interpretation needs to reflect what is happening during that period. And the challenge of that is, is that during the period of Nero? Or is that during the period of Domitian? And is that thing there symbolic of all that's going to happen, not just then, but after? Because immediately after this statement, he says, to his servants, what must soon take place? Now, that's a problem because if Revelation is about the end time uh, and the end time hasn't happened yet and it's been 2,000 since then, uh, 2,000 years since then, what will soon take place, does it mean the immediate history of the seven churches in the Lycos Valley or is it the end time, future, future? Uh, so timing and who does it apply to, his servants? 
uh, I would put to you that his servants at that time, the seven churches, directly applied to them, but it is a model and a symbol that teaches us for the future generations of churches, this will happen again and again and again in cycles. That is teaching us about what is happening to this church, but it will continue to apply for the rest of time. He made it known. Now, in particular, again, in the Greek, he made it known uh, is uh, he signified this. He gave signs and symbols about this. So, uh, the reading and the writing is showing you signs. Now, signs and symbols, as, you may, as I mentioned last week, they point uh, to a particular uh, sequence of things that happens. Uh, if you recall, a uh, couple of weeks back, I, I said that signs point to a deeper meaning. So you don't take that word literally and then effectively say this is only the way it can mean. Uh, these signs point to something that is significant. So the, the, the point about the dragon, for example, is not just literally, okay, there's a dragon that's going to appear sometime at the end of time. Uh, the dragon has symbolism and it is reflected back uh, quite a period of time. So uh, to make it known through signs, uh, and the Greek word is uh, signified, is a verb for signs. What are the signs that are shown in here? Now, in Revelation, according to the UBS translation of the Bible, amongst, Greek, uh, amongst the scholars who study the New Testament in its original Greek, uh, we're now at UBS version 4. But the UBS version 3, uh, there was a table of citations and allusions, in other words, the signs are allusions, indicated there were 676 allusions to Old Testament verses just in the book of Revelation. 676 allusions. How many verses are there in Revelation? 405 verses. So 405 verses, but 676 allusions. And not only that, it's allusions to Isaiah 128 times, Psalms 99 times, Ezekiel 92 times, Daniel uh, 82 times, and Exodus 53 times. What does this mean? It kind of means if you want to be a scholar of Revelation, you must have read all these other books to understand what those symbols mean there. But again, the ordinary people that are listening to, to John, uh, John's letter, don't necessarily have that background. They have in their background the Greek understanding at that time and certain stories which are familiar to them. So when I talk about the Son of Man, you automatically think Jesus Christ. But to the Jewish people, when you say Son of Man, they don't just think about Jesus, they think about Daniel. The book of Daniel, which talks about the Son of Man who comes, who will reign with a kingdom and scepter of iron. They will also remember Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is one of the things that talks about the reign of God. So all these symbolisms and signs point back to a particular period. Uh, let me give you some examples. Uh, maybe amongst yourself, can you think of some uh, symbols that you have read? I know you'll be able to do this if you've actually been doing your Bible reading uh, following the whole church. 
So are there signs here? I mean, what is the symbolism of a lamb? Anyone know? That comes from Deuteronomy, where the lamb is sacrificed uh, for the sins of the people. Okay, also in our New Testament, we talk about the lamb of God who was slain. Uh, how about crowns? Crowns often uh, symbolize political or royal power. Babylon, who's Babylon? Babylon, the great enemy of Israel. In particular, why Babylon? Because they were exiled to Babylon. They were continuously opposed. Uh, so, uh, how about 666? Uh, numerology, you know, 666. So a lot of people say, well, okay, 666 is somebody's name. It's the name of a man. In fact, they're specifically called to go and uh, count it. Okay, now I'll touch a little bit about that. Now, these imageries or signs were taken from nature. Okay, so the sea, the hills, uh, the, the four corners of the wind. Uh, they were taken from trade, uh, prostitution, uh, the power, uh, and they're Old Testament images. And of Old Testament images, they are very numerous. But the one that is uh, also used quite often, which we find it hard to understand what uh, to understand of it, is uh, numbers. For example, uh, in Revelation 7, uh, there is the numbering of the tribes. Okay, so recently someone asked me, Pastor, what do you make of that numbering? 144,000. Do you realize when you read number 7, and let me go to, to Revelation 7 to just read that out. In verse 4, it says, John says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. And so on and so forth uh, until he reaches the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Now, what I want to point out to you is John, in verse 4, says, I heard the number of those who were sealed. This is what he hears. He hears a total number of 144,000. But when you reach to the end of it, when you come to verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, before the earth. Now, why specifically 144,000? What is the significance between him hearing about this as opposed to when he turns and sees, he doesn't see 144,000. He sees more than 144,000. He cannot count it. Now, how we interpret it has caused schisms in the way the churches run. If you are a Mormon, uh, the Mormons believe only 144,000 out of their total entire generation, only 144,000, and they think that they are one of those. Uh, other people have looked at that and said, okay, so the Jewish people, 144,000. Then the rest of the people, the Gentiles, more than 144,000. Uh, again, interpretational issues. But if you understand numbers, uh, you also understand Old Testament imagery. 
when is it ever given that the tribes are counted? You find it in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 1, uh, the tribes are begun to count. They are listed down. Okay, they're listed down. And so you hear about the number of them. Why were they numbered? Because they were going to go into war. And so the purpose of numbering the people and counting how many people, uh, in this particular uh, Revelation 7, it was to mark them. So the people who are numbered are marked by God as people who are sealed and they are ready for battle. That's in chapter 7 because chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, especially in chapter 12, the battle begins as a cosmic battle. Mind you, in that battle, everybody's ready for war, but the battle is won when Jesus appears and he's already read and bloody because he is the lamb that was slain. So the battle is won not by this warfare, although uh, Michael and the archangels are fighting it out in the heavenly realms, but it is overcome and won when Jesus appears on the scene. One little interesting fact, which also uh, most people don't know, the Greek uh, and the Hebrew languages do not have numbers. Numbers came to us from the Arab language, one, two, three, four, five, six. So every alphabet of the Greek and uh, Hebrew alphabet represents a number, uh, Aleph, one. Okay. Uh, and therefore, the names of a person can actually be numbered. And this is why you have this particular statement, uh, count their number. Guess what? Angel, when you translate it into Greek, uh, sorry, sorry, from uh, angel into Greek and from Greek you transliterate into Hebrew, that number is 144. Why is that interesting? Because when you reach Revelation, an angel, in Revelation 21, verse 15 onwards, uh, an angel is told to go measure the size of Jerusalem. And what is the number he comes back with? 144 million stadia and 144 cubits. So it is not meant to be a literal visualization of 144,000 people. It is meant to be interpreted and understood. Why does uh, John use all these symbols? Well, the same way, why is it we talk about eagles versus bears? Uh, because whenever you use this, it has more dramatic effect than just to say they're having a football game. When we use this imagery in science, it points to a larger thing that's happening, more dramatic, more cosmic. So the dragon uh, and the woman, the woman who is clothed with the sun, who is standing on the moon, or the moon is at her feet, gives you this dramatic cosmic image that tells you that what are battles on this earth, right? this quarrel that you had, this game that you played, has cosmic dramatic significance in the whole world. Now, this is one important one which I'd like to just tell you. The imagery that is given in Revelation is symbolic rather than pictorial. 
What it means is it is to be interpreted rather than visualized and it is not always literal. Example, uh, there is this creature uh, that appears that seems to have many eyes on it. And people go like, yeah. <laughs> uh, some people actually have uh, phobias, you know. You see anything with a lot of eyes, or they get very freaked out. So automatically, you tend to think, um, you tend to visualize this creature with many eyes on it. But really, that's not the point of the interpretation. The interpretation is not to visualize it, but to interpret it. So when you see a creature with many eyes, or when you're told about a creature with many eyes, the interpretation is, it is a watchful creature. It is always watching. Do you, do you understand the difference? The interpretation is its watchfulness. Its visualization is something which we can't comprehend. What kind of creature is this that has many eyes? So when you read Revelation, it needs to be interpreted according to the symbols as opposed to symbolically visualized. Now I know online internet, you can actually go online and see people drawing pictures and all that stuff. So they draw the dragon. A dragon with seven heads, ten horns. How do you do that? How many horns on which, on which head? Uh, have you ever kind of seen such a thing? How would, a, how would a dragon have a heart that can pump to seven brains? It, it becomes a bit far-fetched. But if you understand as uh, the seven heads indicated seven powers, seven ruling powers, and they all had crowns. You, you see, in the Bible, when you have a horn, the horn is always a horn of power. So he had ten horns, ten powers, available to it. Seven kingdoms, a crown, seven royal kingdoms. Interpretation of what is symbolically given as opposed to visualization of what that creature might look like. Interpretation of what the woman is. Is the woman really a woman? What does the crown of stars mean? Where else have we encountered stars and moon? Joseph's dreams. And in Joseph's dreams, the stars and the moon indicated to him that uh, all of humanity and all of nature was basically paying obeisance to that ruler at that point in time. One other thing before I move into uh, the text itself. I mentioned the number 666, right? Now, uh, the number 666, uh, you actually come across two, two numbers, either 666 or 616. Uh, because in the traditional text, there was one particular manuscript that actually said 616. Where does this number 666 come from? Well, common, as I said, during that time, the numbers uh, were actually transliterations and numbers assigned from Greek to Hebrew. And if you took the name Nero Caesar and transliterated that uh, from its Greek into Hebrew, uh, you would actually get the word uh, Neron, Neron QSR. Neron Kaiser is uh, how you pronounce it in Hebrew. And then Neron Kaiser in the Hebrew gives you the total sum of 666. 
But not just that, it's Neron Kaiser, and there's one other word that is translated as 666, which is beast, the beast. The beast, uh, in its Greek term, is Theron, and that's where the 616 and 666 uh, differs. Theron, uh, or Teru, uh, is either 666 or 616. What is the writer trying to say? He's saying, Nero Caesar is the beast in code, which the people at that time would understand. Now, you can start thinking in Malaysia, do we do such things? Uh, sometimes, yes, we use certain coded words. Uh, right now, in, uh, you go on Facebook, people say, Bosku. Who's that? Or in certain Chinese circles, you say, Jibko. <laughs> Who's that? Coded terms which people understood. But 2,000 years from now, would you think they'd figure out that? They'd be trying to figure all these things. So, uh, symbolic interpretations. One last thing before I go into the text. It's a very long preamble. Please apologize. Uh, these are what we call Matryoshka dolls uh, from Russia. Uh, the interesting thing about these dolls is that they, they just appear as one doll. Okay. Uh, that's a, a drawing of a babushka. A babushka is a Russian peasant woman. Uh, so normally you just see one. You open it and one more comes out. You open it, another one comes out. You open it and a third one comes out. What, is, what relevance does it have to do with Revelation? Well, when you read Revelation, it's almost like a nested doll. What does it mean? Uh, it comes to this point where you come to the seventh trumpet, but when the seventh trumpet comes, seven other things pop out during the seven trumpets. Uh, in English, we call it the, an intercalation. That's the theological term. The simple English word is overlap. <laughs> it's overlapping. Uh, let, me, let me try and explain how it is. Um, If we talk about the seven cycles, uh, um, we begin with the seven churches, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 322. Then comes the seven seals. And then after that, the seven trumpets. At the end of the seven seals, the seven trumpets come in. It's almost as if the seal doesn't end until the end of the seven trumpets. Then there is another one called the seven thunders, which are sealed. In chapter 10, verse 4, uh, the thunders come out and they rumble, 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 and then he's about to write it down when he's told, seal it, don't write it. Which means to say there's a mystery involved with this, there's more to Revelation than there is, and it is not fully disclosed. Then in the fifth one is the seven signs in heaven. And the seven signs are what we call the center of Revelation. It begins in chapter 12. It ends somewhere around chapter 14, 15. Seven signs that occur. After the seven signs comes the seven bowls of wrath, right? And the, the bowls of wrath come at the end of the seventh sign. And the seventh one, or some people say the sixth final vision, because if you go back and you really check, in chapter 17 to 22, there are six final visions. Seems very odd, right? Why you got seven, 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 and then you got seven items of repetition, but the last one is only six. Anyone know why? 
In the seventh one, there are six visions. Each of the visions is prefixed by a mighty heavenly figure. In the first one, there's an angel who reveals a woman in the beast, chapter 17, verse 1 to 18. In the second one, there's an angel that announces the fall of Babylon in chapter 18, verse 1 to 19.10. In the third vision, there's a rider who comes on a white horse who overthrows the beast. That's in chapter uh, 19. And then in chapter 20, verse 1 to 10, the angel with the key appears to lock up the dragon. In the fifth vision, God himself appears. All of this uh, prefixed with a mighty angelic being. Uh, God himself appears on the throne for final judgment. And on the sixth one, uh, another angel appears in chapter 21, verse 9, to reveal a deaf, very different woman. Not the woman, Babylon, sitting on the dragon, but the bride of Christ. Okay, that's found in uh, heavenly revelation. Um, a very different bride, the bride of the Lamb, the heavenly Jerusalem in chapter 21, verse 1 to 22, verse 17. So the last question is, what is the seventh vision? Because it kind of ends there. Well, the last vision is the vision of Christ coming again. That hasn't happened. <laughs> but it ends in chapter 22, verse 20, the last word, Amen, come Lord Jesus, the final heavenly vision the final heavenly person. So what is all this uh, seven thingies? Uh, and this is where we begin to say, how do we understand the sequences? John Stott, in his book about uh, men and his message, uh, the book of Revelation, he had this particular breakdown from a pastoral point. All those seven, uh, those repetitions of seven, he has basically mapped it and it says, the seven churches is about the church's life in Christ. The seven seals is about safety through Christ. Because in the seven seals, all these calamities occur. Now, let me remind you, in the reading of Revelation, all these disasters in the early part, before chapter 12, all of it is through angelic beings. God's action. God is allowing it to happen, it's only in chapter 12 where the devil comes doing and then the two beasts appear and they start doing it. That's the action of the devil. Seven trumpets is a witness to Christ. And if you have been reading to this, uh, chapter 8 to 11, it's talking about a witness, the church's witness to Christ. What is it saying? In all the disasters that occur, the purpose of all these disasters is that people would repent and turn to God. The church does so, but the rest of humanity doesn't. Uh, then we have the seventh under seal. Then the seven signs. What are the seven signs? That is the church's conflict for Christ. And so in those seven signs, in chapter 12, verse 15, that's where all the drama of warfare, and, you know, spiritual warfare uh, begins. Why is it that uh, persecution is occurring? Lastly, uh, the seven bulls, vindication by Christ, the church's vindication by Christ, because in the seven bulls, it's poured out on everyone who has basically uh, disobeyed God, and the churches are saved for a period of time. And lastly, it is the vision of the church's union with Christ. Now, I'm trying to pack into this 30, 40-minute sermon 
something which people do PhDs for eight years for. So if you are not able to track, don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to summarize it very soon. How do we interpret Revelation? Uh, normally there are four ways. Uh, technically, we call it the preterist view. The preterist view says, John wrote to the seven churches, to the servants who are the seven churches, and therefore it has direct implication to them. So therefore, one of the ways in which we interpret is how would they have understood it at that time? So in brief, the seven churches were facing apathy, immorality, persecution. Apathy in not caring about what Christ said. Immorality in syncretizing, well, I can believe in Christ, but I can also be a part of this world. I can worship idols and yet say God is saying. I can do evil, but say God is with me. Apathy, immorality, and persecution. And John is writing the book of Revelation specifically to tell them, for those of you who are being persecuted, Christ has won the victory. For those of you who are immoral, who have apathy, this is the coming judgment of what is going to come. Be very aware. <laughs> and it is better to persevere and die faithfully than it is to suffer the second death. If you are a historicist, okay, the historicist is what you commonly find nowadays. You know, say, okay, um, the 666 refers to the Pope <laughs> or Bill Gates or whichever religious leader you can find or whichever. So for them, uh, they believe that the that um, uh, Revelation is an almanac. You know, it's a summary of the world history. That all of world history can be revealed by reading Revelation. That's the historicist. Then comes the futurist. Uh, the futurist says that uh, in, Revela in Revelation 1 verse 1, when uh, John says what is soon to come, right? Although we say soon to come, the futurist says the soon to come is also talking about at the end. It only happens right at the end. So they say a lot of this is not relevant, it's only about the end. And then there's a last group that says this is timeless symbolic. Now you may interpret it in any one of these ways, but in reality they are not mutually exclusive. In fact, uh, Stott would argue that all four are relevant. Revelation does talk about a future, the bride. It does talk about history in the sense that all of history is repeating itself. The beasts that is shown there are a combination of Egypt, Babylon, Sodom, Gomorrah, Rome, essentially a representation of all powerful civilizations. And what he is saying is that every powerful civilization has under it a spiritual evil that is driving it. A spiritual evil that will persecute Christians who truly witness for what is true. Uh, the timeless symbolic means that these are parables. The repetitions of these seven things are examples in different ways of telling us all the different things that are about to happen. What? World domination, powers, 
Uh, and evil is a parody of God. Evil always tries to parody, to mimic God. In fact, the most powerful evil is the one that looks like the nearest example to good, but is evil. Let me explain what I mean by that. How do you know a good lie? A good lie is so close to the truth that you think it's truth, but it's a lie. And the devil is the father of lies. He is a really good liar. What he's trying to tell you is that the world will try and tell you that the way to a good and peaceful world is secular. You don't need God. You just need to care for each other. You need to to, uh, provide for technology, modernity, and free thinking, and liberalism, and freedom. That's the way. You don't need God. 2,000 years ago, this message uh, was there. Still relevant now. So, let me finally come to chapter 12. (laughs) It is the first vision that talks about the conflict and why, why, why is there persecution? A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, cried out in pain and she was about to give birth. So who do you think this woman is? If you ask a Catholic, the answer is Mother Mary! (laughs) And the answer is not Mother Mary. Uh, It is intended to show you this is the church or rather the people of Israel, the true people of Israel that God has carved out for himself, out of whom the Messiah will come. So this woman uh, who is clothed with the sun, why clothed with the sun? Because God is light. In him there is no darkness. And so this woman clothed in the sun has God's mantle over her, God's protection watching over her. Why the moon? Uh, Well, because in the story of Joseph, the sun and the moon all bowed down uh, to God's will. She has a crown of 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. The completeness of uh, God's adornment upon her. She was pregnant, she cried out in pain, and as she was about to give birth, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns in its head. Now, if you you talk to uh, the people of Rome, uh, they would automatically understand this as a power either from Daniel, the book of Daniel, or in the book of Ezekiel, which also has all this imagery. Uh, but to them, it's always about a creature that has political power, has economic might, and has royalty on its side. The main person they'd be thinking about would be Rome, which was the dominant power at that time. Another sign appeared in heaven. And uh, of that particular period, uh, there was a myth, a particularly Greek myth called Lithos, uh, and the story of Python. Python is a dragon, and that dragon basically was given a prophecy uh, that Zeus's uh, son would be born, right? And this son would destroy Python. Okay, now, I don't want to go into this story because that's another story of its own. 
But what it is, is that it's a story which when the people heard this myth about the dragon and all that, they would say, yeah, very similar. There's a parallel here. But this parallel is different. This child will come up. Okay, so the similarity is that in the Python Lithos myth, the child that is born will come back and destroy the dragon. That's the parallel. The child born to this woman would rise up and basically destroy evil. Verse 4, its tail, the dragon, swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Again, eh? symbolic interpretation, not visualization. Neither is it intended to be literal. You don't go around and say, wow, one third of the stars in the sky is many, many billions or trillions. No, it's not intended to be counted. It's intended to show that a number, a portion uh, was brought down and it was a very powerful beast because for you to be able to pull down the stars indicates power. That is how it was meant to be interpreted. So this dragon seems very powerful, but not all powerful. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Again, think back to the people who were hearing at that time. They were always at risk. The people of Israel were always on the run. Egypt, Pharaoh's army chasing after them, wanting to destroy and kill them. Jesus, in the year he was born, the Roman soldiers, Herod, sent out his soldiers and said, kill all infants below the age of two. The dragon is always there, evil, is always there wanting to consume and destroy good. That's the interpretation, that's the symbolism that's being presented there. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. The Jewish people and the Gentile people who knew about the Old Testament or would have read the Old Testament know this is a prophecy about the Messiah, especially the Son of Man who will rule for millennia, many years, with an iron scepter. Psalm 2. Okay. So they knew this was about Jesus. But it wasn't a story about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It was a story about his birth and his resurrection and his transfiguration. Very, very short story. But in essence, what he's indicating is salvation has come. And by this act of salvation, the devil has been thwarted. Her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The woman fled from the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care for 1,260 days. What is that figure for? 1,260 days is 42 months. 42 months was supposed to be the representation in the Hebrew understanding of the period of exile in the desert where they were protected by God day and night. People say, isn't that 40 years? Yes, it's 40 years. But it's 40 years plus plus because uh, they only entered into the promised land after warfare. So every month, a representation of the year. 42 months. How many days did Jesus spend in the desert? 40 days. 40 days, 40 months, 42 days. A number protected in the desert. Again, not literal, neither do you visualize it, it's to be interpreted. 
and interpreted according to Old Testament scripture plus the context of their understanding at that time. Then, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. They lost their place in heaven. Great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. Now, John is indicating to them cosmic language. Huh? These things that seem to be happening on earth have a cosmic significance. Your battle against the Roman soldier, your battle and persecution against the, uh, by the Jewish synagogue leaders is very much like the battle in the heavenlies that is going on. There are correlations. And so what John is trying to tell them, your earthly battle has cosmic significance, has eternal cosmic significance. What you give up on on this earth, you are giving up on in the heavenly realms. So he's trying to tell them, your daily challenges are not minor. They have eternal consequences. <clears throat> I'll come and bring a conclusion to that one there. So, <clears throat> sorry, uh, then in verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven. Uh, sorry, uh, before that, verse 9. He was hurled down, the devil was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Verse 10, then I heard a voice in heaven say, Now have come salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night, Ha Satan, the accuser, uh, <clears throat> has been hurled down. They triumph over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the, sword, uh, by the word of their testimony. The triumph is not through warfare. The triumph is through the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of his word, the people, the people's word. Okay, I've done this. Huh? I've talked about the woman, the dragon, and the male child. The woman represents uh, true Israel. Uh, the dragon is representative of every power, political, economic, uh, you know, every civilization basically that has in its undergirding the work of the devil who is provoking it to do things that persecute Christians. And then the male child, Jesus, the one who by his blood has won victory. <clears throat> Cosmic conflict. What is Satan's outcome? Very clearly, at the center of Revelation, at the center of Revelation, at the core point of the book, John is telling his people who are feeling very defeated, very persecuted, what kind of religion is this that I believe in where I'm being persecuted? It's not very victorious. He is telling them, Satan has lost. He has been defeated, ha has been cast out of heaven. Okay, so he had a place in heaven, he's been cast out, and he has not just been dropped onto the earth, he's been virtually hurled down to the earth. Now, this kind of imagery has effect on people. Satan used to have a place in the heavenlies, used to be all-powerful. He's defeated, he's cast out of heaven. You know what I have to say? But he's on earth. That's where he is, here, now. Verse 13 to 17, what is being said there is that the persecution of the woman and her offspring, verses 13 to 17, is that behind every earthly persecutor stands the force of spiritual evil. Not only does John say this, Paul in Ephesians 6.12 says, you know, for your battle is not against flesh and blood, you know, powers and principalities. 
So the things that you are going through, on the one hand, it's a result of our sinful nature. But on the other hand, you have an active agent of evil who is opposed against you. And so you should look at the person who has offended you, not just as some human being. But behind that person is an evil that is instigating him against you. Your prayer needs to be directed against the evil, not the flesh. Because you also are flesh. It's like you want to condemn him, you're condemning yourself. There is an evil that instigates people to do things. Many systemic powers have evil, greed, uh, selfishness, disobedience to God at its core. And so John's letter to the churches is to tell them the devil is attacking you because he has been defeated. You see, if he's not defeated or he has, uh, you know, uh, he still has his free reign and the battle hasn't been won, he'd be still quite happy to just carry on doing what he wants. But because he's lost, he's a bad loser and he wants to inflict as much damage as he can to the people of God. It is set in motion by Christ's blood and the word of their testimony. This is the very thing that defeats the devil. Not your cleverness, not your industry, not your power or intellect. Blood of Christ, His resurrection, and our testimony. The word of the What is the testimony? Remember I mentioned uh, Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna. His testimony when he was persecuted unto death is, I will not respond to fear. I will not respond to your violence. Your violence I will respond to with love. Your threats I will respond to with truth. For 86 years I have served God and he has been good to me. Why should I now renounce that? That is the testimony. So the gospel that we share the things that we reflect that says that God is real and we live according to His law in our lives, that is the thing that defeats evil. Lastly, He's also angry and we are being persecuted because according to the Bible, His time is short. John's revelation says it's short, no? but uh, a moment in God's eye <laughs> is a thousand years. Right? So it's short, but it's what he's trying to say is it's limited. It has a time frame. <clears throat> so I want you to think about this verse, uh, uh, Revelation 12, 11. If this is rather hard to look at, you just look at the front of your bulletin cover. It says, they have triumphed or they have conquered over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is the very thing that we claim our victory on, by the blood of Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sins. I've come to realize that in Penang, when I talked to some of my friends, and just yesterday I was with Brother William, and we were sitting together with uh, one of the class guys, and he said, it's always a work of the Spirit and the power of, the, the power of Jesus Christ. Many demons, many unclean spirits, many mediums, very senior guys, have been transformed. And what we thought was impossible has been made possible because people in the name of Jesus Christ share the testimony 
live out the life of what Christ has done. And so, testify to the truth of God's kingdom. We need to do that. We need to share this testimony of the word of God in our lives. Not just by sharing God's love and gospel, but living it out. Going forward, how do we deal with this? John's point was, whatever is happening on this earthly world has cosmic significance. So any compromise and apathy, immorality in this current world is a compromise with the devil. The pornography that people watch, the greed that we indulge in, the corruption that we offer is a compromise and a sharing in with the devil. Okay, I, I say this, I know it's shocking for some people, but it's something which we need to recognize. That the moment that we participate in these acts, it might seem uh, very common, uh, everybody is doing it, is of this world. John is saying, this worldly action has cosmic significance. It is the devil doing this. And if you do it as well, you are partnering with the devil. Is that what you want? Secondly, a very clear one that he says, uh, triumph and victory over evil is through Jesus Christ and faithful Christian witness. We triumph through Christ, abiding in Him, living in Him, confessing Him every day, sharing Him everywhere else. When we think that we can live our life by our uh, you know, integrity, by our own uh, hard work and all that stuff, I think you're kidding yourself. Number of times and I realized that it is only the fact that we are praying over our children that our children are shaping out well. Sometimes you don't pray for them, you wonder, why are they like that? <laughs> I've done all I can, why are they turning out like this? Pray, ask for Christ to work in them. Lastly, John's persistent message that in this time and in the future, there will be persecution and that we are to persevere in our Christian witness despite this persecution. He says it in many different ways. We avoid it in as many different ways. Part of the mark of being a Christian is to actually understand that in our suffering, we need to suffer for the right reasons and the ones that are worth suffering for give value to what our life is all about. If Christ really means what he means to us, then we ought to be willing to do that. Friends, let us pray. Dear Lord, I've said much, maybe even too much, but your words are always enough and your spirit will always help us to catch that which we need to know for this season and this time. I pray, Lord, that we will go to a deeper understanding of revelation, what it means to us, uh, now, even as it did to our brothers and sisters then. And help us in the midst of all this, Lord, to be able to persevere in doing what is right and to be faithful to our Christ, even unto death. May your word go forth, Lord, not return empty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.